in these sessions <coughs> that every holiday in the Jewish calendar year has a special atmosphere to it. Not only does it have a special atmosphere to it, but we learned that there is a positive spiritual contribution that is ingrained in the time of the year, from year to year. And as the Jew passes through the Jewish calendar and he sets his tone to be in synchronization with that particular time of the year, he can absorb from the time the uniqueness of that time. The example that we gave for this is, for instance, Pesach. The holiday of Passover is a holiday where we know that the Jew was freed from Egypt. It's a time of redemption. Therefore, we say that there is a spiritual gift of redemption in that time of the year, and every Jew that would want to be redeemed or to be freed from certain spiritual traps that he himself is in, Passover would be the time of the year with its observances and with the whole spirit of the time where one can have his own mini exodus from Egypt. And so it's true for all of the holidays of the year that there is a certain spiritual aspect that becomes ingrained in the time and as the Jew travels through the year he doesn't only pass through the holidays but he gains and he develops from each holiday what that holiday has to contribute. Taking it one step further, we see that that contribution that we speak of, <coughs> that contribution that we speak of in terms of every holiday being etched into time and contributing to the Jew that passes through that time, we also see that that contribution is one that is unique to, to the Jewish people in terms of their particular development. What I mean by that is as follows. Being that the Jew has become selected as a nation as an, and, as an individu and as individuals with very specific functions and purpose, spiritual purposes, therefore the entire Jewish calendar year and the contributing factors that the year has are all geared to help him in his function and purpose. So in other words, the element that's in the time is not only an element of time, it's an element of time that's critically linked to his particular function or purpose. Now, we have unique functions, each of us as an individual, but we have general functions. So not only are the times of the year, times in which there are spiritual gifts or spiritual inspirations, but those spiritual gifts and inspirations are designated to be those that are necessary for us as individuals and as a nation to be able to fulfill what God expects of us as, a, as people and as a nation. This is why we can actually take every single holiday of the year and we can make a reference to it where there is a gift and the gift is given to us as a people. For instance, Pesach is always referred to as Gaal Yisrael, the redemption of the Jewish people. Shavuos is referred to as Hamelame Torah La'amo Yisrael, God who teaches Torah to his people. Sukkos is referred to as Shomer Amo Yisrael. Sukkos has a concept of protection. God protects his people. Yom Kippur, again, Machlan L'Shiftei Yisrael. God forgives the tribes of the Jewish people. So each is a gift, and it's a gift that's designated for the particular purpose that we have as a people. If this is all true, the question that comes up now is, 
what is the essence of the day of Rosh Hashanah? Now, the quickest response that you would give to that question is it's a day of judgment. I know that. But what is the element of the day? What is the spiritual contribution in the day to us as people? What is its contribution and what is its unique contribution to us in our development? Can we demarcate it? Can we define it? Can we give it a name? Pesach, we say, is Geula. Shavuos is learning. Sukkot is protection. Yom Kippur is Mechila, is forgiveness. What would be the coinage? What would be the phrase that we would use to define the essence of the day and its gift to us as a people? How would we, would de- how would we define it? Well, people of divine inspiration let the secret out of the bag by telling us that there's a particular psalm which, is de- which defines the essence of the holiness of the day of Rosh Hashanah. And they tell us that it is the 47th psalm, which is the psalm that we say seven times before we begin blowing the shofar on the day of Rosh Hashanah. If you look in your machzer, your prayer book for the high holidays, you'll see that there's a psalm there which talks about the times of Messiah, at which time the entire world will realize who is God and the function of the Jewish people in bringing out that realization. We speak about going back to Israel and about everybody recognizing our right to be in Israel. It's a very beautiful psalm. And that psalm was designated as the one that's most appropriate for Rosh Hashanah and the symbolism of Shofar that's so much a part of Rosh Hashanah. In that psalm, there's a verse that says the following thing. God will choose for us again our inherited area, which is a reference to the land of Israel, as Ga'ain Yaakov, and he will give back the grandeur to Jacob, a reference to the Jewish people that he has loved for all times. So there's a reference to us as a Jewish people being Ga'ain Yaakov. Now you most probably are familiar with the word Ga'on, as in the Vilna Ga'on, which means a great person. Ga'on Yaakov means the same thing. It means a great Jacob. Ga'on Yaakov. The real word is not great, that would be Gadol. But Ga'on really means grandeur, splendor. The splendor of Jacob will be returned to us by the one that loves us so much, a reference to God. So commentaries say that if you want the coinage for the day of Rosh Hashanah, the day of Rosh Hashanah can be referred to as Ga'on Yaakov, the grandeur, the splendor, the greatness of Jacob. A total mystery as to what this is supposed to mean. And what does it mean on a day of judgment? On a day of judgment, we seem to shrink into the background, scared of being judged. And we certainly are not that confident of ourselves to say the grandeur and the splendor of Jacob is the essence of the day. It seems to not fit what the whole day is about. I come with a list. I come with a, with a certain amount of concern. I come with a, a heavy heart about different things. Certainly, this is not the time to talk about Ge'on Yaakov, the grandeur of Jacob. Wherein do we see in the holiday of Rosh Hashanah and the holiness of the day anything that we can phrase as the grandeur of Jacob, the greatness of Jacob? So the way to explain this is in the following way. There's a Gemara in Chagiga 
The Talmud in Chagiga tells us the following thing. It's a verse in Amos, and the verse says the following thing. B'mistarim tifke nafshi mipnei geva. In a hidden place called Mistarim, that's the name of the place, Mistarim, in a hidden place, God cries for the lost grandeur of the Jewish people. This is what the Gemara says. God has a place, and the name of the place is Mistarim. And there he cries over the grandeur and greatness of the Jewish people, that it was taken away from them, and it was given to the nations of the world. Now it is very clear that the Jewish people, unfortunately, in history have had many, many problems, many, many tsaras. But this particular saying of the sages is identifying one particular problem and saying that that one particular problem, God reserves the tears over that problem for a special place called Mistarim. What is the problem? The problem is the grandeur, the splendor that the Jewish people possessed when they were in Israel, they lost it. They're a nation in exile. And it was given to the nations of the world, mind you, only on a temporary basis. But even for a temporary basis, God takes that particular problem of seeing how the grandeur and splendor was transferred to others. He takes that problem to heart and he cries over it, Bimistarim, in a place called Mistar. Now, Mistar means a hidden place. And this saying of the sages is very hidden as well. It comes from a hidden place. What does this mean that God cries? It doesn't mean it literally because God doesn't have physical, physical properties as we speak of in ourselves. What does it mean that he cries b'mistarim? What is this all supposed to mean? <coughs> well, basically... The way this is explained is in the following way. If you recall last week, we spoke about the idea that the Jewish people are referred to as a Jewish nation by virtue of the unified soul or the collective soul that is created by their worship as a nation. We said that outside of the nationalistic definitions that we can give to a nation by virtue of, of property, geographic resources or any other kind of resources there is a much deeper definition that bonds all Jews together and that is the collective soul that's created by all people's mitzvah together in the service of God we mentioned last week that all the mitzvahs when they are performed build that collective soul that represents the Jewish nation but we know and we mentioned this last week that in Gullus, that when we're in exile, it's not possible for us to perform all of the mitzvot. In fact, the Shalah HaKadosh, who is a Kabbalist, explains that he figured it out that the maximum mitzvot that a person can have in Gullus today is 270. And the way to remember it, the Shalah HaKadosh tells us, is by a verse in the song, in, in, in the Song of Songs. In the Song of Songs, it says, a reference to the Jew in exile, Ani Yeshena, that I am asleep, the Libi are, but my heart 
is still alive. And the word R is spelled with an I and an Arash, which adds up to 270. As if to say that while the collective soul as a whole of the Jewish people is asleep, it's in a slumber, because in exile we don't have the performance of all the mitzvot, but there's still a heart that's throbbing. There is still a basic life support system that's keeping that co- collective soul alive. What is it? Libi R, the 270 mitzvot that we can do in Gullis. Now, when is the Jewish people considered totally awake? In the verse in the Song of Songs it says that the Jewish people are asleep spiritually, but the heart is still throbbing. There's still signs of life in the 270 mitzvot. When would the Jewish people be considered totally awake and completely spiritually alert? That would be with all the mitzvot. If we would have the opportunity of doing all the mitzvot, or as many as we can when we would be in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, then we would be considered completely spiritually alert. The mitzvot would wake us to a total state of awareness. Which mitzvot are the principal mitzvot that are we, we, we are missing now that we're in Gullis? Now, you might think to yourself, oh no, here we go. He said 270, and we know there's 613, so now he's going to list out close to 350 mitzvot. Now, that's not what I'm going to do. What I'd rather do is try to identify not the mitzvot themselves, but the conditions that are necessary for those mitzvot. Because sometimes, by understanding the condition that's necessary, and then you understand that that condition doesn't exist, it defines in a much clearer way what we're really missing. Sure, I can give you a long list, but let's better talk about the condition that allows the performance of the mitzvot, and today that we don't have them, obviously we're missing the condition. And that would be a much more accurate definition, and certainly a shorter one. So let's go through it. In a basic way, I broke it down. In a basic way, the mitzvot need these, the mitzvot that we don't have today are basically because of the lack of the following conditions. Number one, the lack of prophecy among us. Number two, the lack of the divine presence in a strong way in our midst, as we had it when we had the Holy Temple. The lack of a true judicial system. The lack of a Holy Temple and all the orders and services that were with it. The lack of a true religious government. And the lack of the land of Israel in the way that we had it when we were there with the Holy Temple. If you take these six conditions, you will find that a majority of the mitzvot that we don't have today are linked to our lack of one of these six conditions. What this means is that (coughs) these are the conditions that were we to have these conditions, we would then be able to have all the mitzvot And by having all the mitzvot, we would have the Gaon Yaakov. We would have the grandeur and the splendor of Jacob. What is the grandeur of the Jew? What is the greatness of the Jew? His ability to thrive 
in a spiritual surrounding. These six conditions are the lack of a spiritual habitat, or at least a healthy spiritual habitat. These six conditions are the conditions which create the greatness of Jacob. Prophecy, a temple, a religious government, the land of Israel, the Beis HaMikdash. So think of all these things, and they're directly linked to all the mitzvahs that we don't have. But these are the conditions that directly reflect a tremendous splendor, a tremendous greatness of the Jewish people, and a tremendous beauty that's obvious to the world. Now, as the Jew lived in Israel and slowly but surely moved away from that level of spiritual living, slowly but surely these things were taken away. Prophecy left. The Sanhedrin broke up. The judicial court system broke up. The Beis HaMikdash was under threat and finally lost. The religious government per se and the strength of royalty became, became diluted. And finally we were chased out of Eretz Yisrael. So, to the point that we reach the level of being Yeshena, asleep, with only a faint heartbeat of 270 mitzvahs keeping that soul yet alive. But that's, in other words, if you would want to describe the two conditions of the Jewish people, their state of grandeur, their state of total spiritual alertness, and the state of being basically spiritually asleep, but the heart that still throbs and still alive, and you could still revive, this would be the way of explaining it. The grandeur of God's presence and everything that's entailed in that, and then moving slowly away to the beer 270 mitzvahs without an Eretz Yisrael and without a Beis HaMikdash and without all of those things. But if we analyze this, we will notice that these six items, which are the conditions for the mitzvot that we don't have today, these six items were taken away from us in two ways. Some of them were taken away from us by God purposely removing them and hiding them away until which time we will become worthy of them again and then we will be able to uncover them. For instance, many of the articles of the Beis HaMikdash of the Holy Temple were not destroyed. They were hidden away for a later date when we would be able to be worthy of them again. So we took Nebuah, for instance, prophecy. It, it was removed it became absent from the scene because we weren't worthy of it. The ark and many items in the temple were nignas, they were buried away. Never destroyed, buried away. Removed temporarily from the scene because we weren't worthy to, to have those things. And then, there's another condition. The other condition is that the nations of the world come and by brute force take them away from us. And that would be the Beis Hamikdash, the land of Israel, the religious government, those kinds of things. So if you analyze it, the Gaon Yaakov, the splendor and the greatness of Jacob that we lost when we went into Golis, when we went into exile, we lost in one of two ways, either by it being hidden away or removed temporarily by God, or by the nations of the world coming with brute force and ripping it away from us. Now, 
when it says that God cries b'mistarim, first of all, we have to know that what crying means is the lack of ability to give blessing. When God cries, what it really is is the pain on God's part of not being able to give the blessing that he wanted to give. You see, God wants to give very, very much. And when we create a condition by our mistakes that God cannot give, the greatest part of the mistake is the disappointment that God has that he can't give the blessing. And whenever it says in a, in a saying in the sages that God cries, what it really means is the expression of God not being able to give. And what is God crying over? The Gaon Yaakov, the beauty, the grandeur, the splendor that he would love to give to us as a people, and he can't give it to us. But where does he cry over that? Bimisturim, in a hidden place. And do you know what that means? What it means very simply is that while there were certain things that God hid away, there were other things that the nations took away from us. God cries over, thi- over the things that the nations took away from us and he cries that it would have been better if those things wouldn't have been taken away from us but that I would have been able to hide them away for you for later. In other words, there's a special pain that God has when not only don't we have it but the gifts and the splendor and the grandeur that we had was taken over by people that were less than worthy. It hurts more. If you lose something, that's one thing. But if the thing that you lose, you then see in the hand of the other person, that's, a t- that's even a more hard thing to deal with. The mistarim for those things that were not hidden away, but that were forcibly taken away from us by the nations of the world, over those things God cries. I would have loved that those things too would have been put away. What is it referring to? It's referring to Eretz Yisrael. It's referring to the land of Israel, where God is crying that if the blessing is not ready to come to you, I would have preferred if it would have only been possible. The reasons why it couldn't be that way is a very deep discussion. But what God is saying is that there's a special hurt, that the gifts that were wrenched out of your hands by the nations of the world were also not able to be hidden away, that nobody should touch those special things until you become worthy of getting them back. So, that is what the sages mean when they say, when the verse says that God cries in a hidden place, it means that he cries over the grandeur that we lost, that it could not have been lost in a way of just being removed, that nobody touches it till we become worthy of it. But let's take it a little bit further. Let's take it a little bit further. Do you know, and most probably you are aware of the fact that in the Halal Hagadol, in the large Halal, we say not for Kila Olam Kastos that God's loving kindness is forever, but we say 26 times Kila Olam Kasto. If you ever bothered counting it, it's in the big, it's in the davening, it's in the prayers, in the Shabbos morning prayers, and it's in the Haggadah, a whole list of all kinds of things that God did for us, then after each one of the events we say, Kila Olam Chasta, because God's loving kindness is forever. If you bell the counting it up, it adds up to 26 Kila Olam Chastas. That's what it adds up to. So the Talmud tells us that these 26 
for God's loving kindness is forever is uh, symbolic of the 26 generations the 26 generations from the beginning of creation till the giving of Torah that the world was sustained merely by God's loving kindness after God gave the Torah to the world the world is sustained by virtue of the Torah and the performance of its mitzvot but from the beginning of creation till till that time of the giving of Torah the world had to be sustained so to speak on a on a on gratis on a, just a gift without any real deserving involved what would be called a matnas chinam a present that's really an un, a non-deserving present what is it like? it's like everything that you do to raise a child so that you, the child should come to the point of being able to take care of itself so everything that you do for it up till that point is not because the child deserved it sometimes you, de- you feel like giving the child the exact opposite but it's all to get the child to the point that the child will then be able to sustain itself and ca- care for itself so those first 26 generations were matnas china the m- immediate picture that comes into our mind when we think of this the immediate picture that comes into our mind when we think of this is okay God was a loving kind showed loving kindness for the first 26 generations and then when the 26 generations were over God said I'm fed up with loving kindness from now on you have to deserve it that's the way we picture it but in truth that's not true and the best way to explain it is where you, somebody comes knocking at your door and says, I don't have any money for a cup of coffee or for anything else. Give me some money. And instead of giving the person some money, you, give, you hand them over a couple of handbooks on how to learn a skill. And by that way, he earns his own money to, make, to get the cup of coffee and whatever else he needs. Now, one can argue that the person that would have given him the money, that's an act of loving kindness. The one that gave him some handbooks is a smart aleck. But in truth, we know that it's not that way. We know that sometimes the greatest kindness that you can do with the person is not to give him the handout that's non-deserved, but to give him the ability of ultimately deserving everything that he would be getting. And in a certain way, that's the deepest kindness that you can do with the person. The deepest kindness that you could do with the person is to make that person self-sufficient, that that person could earn his keep that he's doing it on his own so when we say that the 26 generations God gave to the world in an act of loving kindness and after 26 generations he did not it doesn't mean that his loving kindness became any less quite to the contrary the loving kindness reached the point that now he gave us the ability through Torah to be able to earn our keep and that's even a greater level of loving kindness now what it means to say what it means to say then is that though there was a system of reward and punishment even before the giving of Torah there was right and wrong the biggest proof of this is that God destroyed the generation of the flood and subsequent generations also had punishments for what they did wrong so there's no question that there was a system of reward or punishment but ultimately the, the system of being rewarded for doing the right things was not the factor that was crucial to keep the world alive and going. 
What is the crucial factor to keep the world alive and going? The entire Torah. The performance of all the mitzvahs of the Torah and the reward that's built out, the spiritual development that's built out of it, it's upon that that the world hinges. In other words, up till that point, we don't say that it was deserved by the right decisions of people. It was a matnas chinam. It was a present. It was an act of loving kindness, undeserved. And past that point, it was the Torah. So what are we saying? What we are saying is that it was necessary not to be just a gift, but to be earned, it was necessary for the performance of all of Torah in order that it shouldn't be in the category of a gift, but that it should be considered earned. Who got that tremendous gift? Who got that ability of earning the keep and that every twitch and turn should not be a handout? Who got that gift? That gift was given to the Jewish people by virtue of the fact that they were handed over the responsibility of the Torah. By the Jew being handed over the responsibility of the Torah, that meant that the Jew was now being told, I am doing an ultimate act of kindness with you. What is the ultimate act of kindness? That everything that you're going to receive and your whole existence is based on a the system of deserving, a system of earning, a system of making it happen for yourself by what you're doing by the mitzvah of the Torah. What it means then is, we just got finished saying a moment ago that what is the grandeur and splendor of the Jewish people as a whole? The grandeur and the splendor of the Jewish people as a whole is the performance of all the mitzvot of the Torah. Listen carefully, because here is where the equation comes together. What is the grandeur and splendor of the Jew? What develops his collective soul? What identifies him as a Jewish nation? What identifies them as a Jewish nation? The performance of all the mitzvot. That's the Gaon Yaakov. That's the splendor of Yaakov. What is it that defines that this world is a world that's based on deserving? The giving of Torah. So it comes out that the Gaon Yaakov is the basis of the world. It comes out that the ability of the Jew to develop in his grandiose and in his splendid way as a person is not only something that's for him and for, him, for the people as a whole, but it's representative of the entire foundation of the world. What is Rosh Hashanah? What is the day of Rosh Hashanah? The day of Rosh Hashanah is the day that God decided to create the world. And every Rosh Hashanah, there's almost like a review of should the world go on for another year? And how should the world go on for another year? It's a day of creation. Zikar and Liam Rishon. It's a memory for the first day of creation. So what's the essence of the day? The essence of the day is to define is to decide for the next year the existence of the world. We're talking not the ongoing of the world, that's every day. The very existence of the world is reviewed in the courts of heaven on the day of Rosh Hashanah. So we're talking about the very existence of the world. If we're talking about the very existence of the world, the Jew will then be decided, it will be decided for the Jew, his Gaon Yaakov his splendor and grandeur. Being that the splendid and the grandeur of the Jew and the performance of his mitzvot is the very foundation of the world, 
the, the yardstick of judgment on the day of Rosh Hashanah is how close is the Jew to his Gaon Yaakov? How much does the Jew want his Gaon Yaakov? And that is why the coinage for the day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the day of reviewing the existence of the world, the coinage is, do you fit under the title of Gaon Yaakov? Do you want to go under the title of Gaon Yaakov? What are you doing to be part of the Gaon Yaakov? What have you done to build the temple in your day? What have you done to return the Jewish people to their homeland? What have you done that there should be prophecy and a judicial system in the people again? So the entire judgment of the day is the judgment of Gaon Yaakov. How do you fit in? How do you relate to wanting the gifts of splendor? How do you relate to it? Why is that the crucial part of this day? Because that's what's crucial to the very existence of the world. And on the day, the birthday of the world, that's what's being reviewed. Is humanity, and in particular the Jew, moving that much closer, that much closer to those things that are the very core of their splendor and the very essence of the foundation of the world? <coughs> so far, what we explained is that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment upon the existence of the world, questioning if mankind is moving to the essentials of why the world was created, and that for the Jew is the Gaon Yaakov, the principal elements that create his splendor. Without those principal elements, which we listed before, the six conditions, if those things would never come about, and the Jew would never be moving in that direction, our Rosh Hashanah would be a bad one. But fortunately, Jews all over the world know, and Jews all over the, the hearts of Jews throb all over the world with the pain of being able to get back those six, six things. So while we don't possess them, but there is definitely a tremendous desire and aspiration to reach back to the Gaon Yaakov and to commit ourselves to trying to reach it in some way. As long as that's true, God says we have foundations for this world. 26 daros, 26 generations was loving kindness, but I call it quits on that. Afterwards, it has to go with a certain amount of deserving. The deserving is defined by humanity moving in the direction of Gaon Yaakov. Let's go a little bit further, because this comes to be a very, very important concept how we understand the Day of Judgment. And this is very important. There's a verse in the Prophets that says the following thing, Rak eschem yadati mikol mishpachis ha'adama It was only you that I really knew in a very close and loving way from all the families of earth. Lachain, and therefore, efkeid aleichem eskal I will take you to task for all your wrongdoings. This is what the Prophet says. Being that I showed you so much love from all the families of earth, it is that for that reason that I will take you to task for everything that you did that you weren't supposed to do. It's a very bittersweet kind of a message because I've singled you out in terms of function and purpose and showed you so much love, therefore, therefore, there's trouble. And I'm going to remember everything that you did wrong, and there will be a way of dealing with it. What is that supposed to mean? Let's explain it. 
because we think of it up, poor guy, HaKadosh Baruch Hu picked us and now we're stuck. If we get out of line, we're in trouble. There's something that's much deeper than that. You see, when after 26 de- generations, God decides that He wants to give a tremendous act of loving kindness to the world. What, what is that tremendous act of loving kindness? That the human being should have the ability of deserving all the blessing. That's a gift. To get the, the handbook, to get the potentials, to get the abilities of deserving it, that's a tremendous gift. So where do we stand here? We stand, we stand here very happy and very privileged that we have the ability of getting reward which is ultimately the idea of self-worth and deserving something. The only trouble is, this idea of deserving, what does that mean, deserving? That means that there's a system of justice. In other words, in the first 26 generations when God was just giving it out of an act of loving kindness, undeserving, there was no real system of real mishpat, of real justice. It wasn't based on deserving. There was no foundation. There's no foundation. There's no foundation. There's no foundation of mishpat, of justice involved. Of course, there is a basic system of right and wrong, reward and punishment, but the world is not based on it. God is giving it even without deserving it. So there's no basis, there's no foundation of deserving. But with the giving of Torah, the world receives a foundation of justice. You've got to deserve it. You've got to prove it through Torah. So while on the one hand, there's a tremendous privilege and there's a tremendous blessing in your ability to deserve all the blessings that you're going to get, but then justice says that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, so then you have to suffer the the opposite consequence. In other words, as long as it's with a matnas chinam, as long as it's in the first 26 generations of the world, that it's basically an act of loving kindness that's not rooted in any real system of justice. So there, there's no precarious scales of justice. But the moment that God decides that now the world has to run with a basis of justice, and I'm going to give you the way of deserving it, so fine. If you do the things that are deserving to get it, so you have a tremendous benefit from this system. Because now, you, everything that you get in terms of blessings, you can say that you did it and you deserved it and it's mine. Beautiful. But it also has now the possibility that if you don't do it, there's a scale. And just to be fair to the system of justice, for as great as the blessing of deserving is, if you do, to the same amount, there's the element of justice that goes the opposite way when we don't do. So there's a scale here that comes into being. And this is what it means when it says, Rak eschem yodati mikol It was you that I knew. In other words, it was you that I gave this tremendous gift to from all the families of earth. That you can ultimately reach the way of deserving it for yourselves and for the rest of the world. Lachain, therefore, once I made a basis and a foundation of justice, I have to take you to task for the things that you do wrong. I gave you the gift. I gave you the ability. If I gave you the ability, so to the degree that you use it, 
you've deserved blessing to the degree that you don't. So then it's the opposite. So that, in other words, the, the scales of justice come into being from both sides. Therefore, what I would say at this point, while I don't want to get into this issue, for many people the idea of quote-unquote chosen people raises many problems. And the answer, in a very simple way, to that problem is what we just said now. The prophet says it. The prophet is saying it very clearly. It was you that I singled out for this act of loving kindness. And what's in its fold? The scale of justice. So the idea of being singled out means that you have a tremendous potential, you have function and purpose, fine, and you can ultimately reach through your endeavors tremendous heights, but you should know that now you have a responsibility and you have to answer to a scale of justice. And for the, all, the, all the potential and for all the function and for all the purpose, there's a peckle of responsibility that comes with it. It's interesting, we can't get into it now, but we know that when Isaac blessed Jacob and, I, and Asaph wanted the blessing, part of the blessing was the land of Israel. And, part, and the way to get that blessing was through 210 years of suffering in Egypt, for whatever reason. Now, Asaph knew this. So Asaph ultimately, really, in his descendants, didn't start up with the Jew until after the Jew had already put in all 210 years. They didn't want to argue and wrestle away from Jacob his right to the land of Israel before Egypt, because then they would have had to suffer in Egypt. That they're not interested in. For that, they don't have to be chosen. They'd rather somebody else sweat, and then they take over afterwards. And this is a historical note that you can tuck away. We can talk about it some other time. But that's really what Rak Eschem Yodati means. But here we come to a very interesting concept. In a court of law, in the judicial, in the judicial system of the Jew, when we really had the court of law, there was something called Malchus. This is fascinating. There was Malchus, lashes. Lashes are not fascinating, they hurt. But the law was that the people that gave the lashes for the particular crimes that the Torah defined that they were lashes, there were two requirements of these people. What were the requirements? The requirements, requirements were chaserei koach, they had to be people that lacked real physical strength, and yeserei mada, and they had to be people that possessed a tremendous amount of wisdom. Right? This is a law, Maimonides brings down the law. Now, the first half of the law is very under, understandable. We picked people that didn't have brute strength because we weren't interested in killing the guy. He had to have a punishment, and we didn't want it to be a, a punishment without mercy, so we selected people that didn't have too much strength, chaserei koach. But what on earth does people with tremendous wisdom and high spiritual level have to do with, with the lashes? If a person is brainy and intellectual and philosophical and very spiritual, it's not going to make too much difference in terms of what the lash feels like to the person that's getting it. So, chaseri is understandable. We didn't want it to be a painful experience or we wanted it to be only as painful as it had to be. But what is the yaseri mada? 
What is this idea of tremendous knowledge and wisdom and sensitivity? What, what, what does that mean? <coughs> First of all, the word das, which is ex- expressed as the requirement of this person, Yesere Mada, a person of tremendous knowledge and wisdom, is the term that's always used when you have to weigh between two sides. There's a side to say, like, that he's guilty. There's a side to say that he's innocent. And then the way the Talmud says it, Vidas shlishes hashaykel. And the das and the knowledge and the wisdom of the person has to be able to weigh between the two sides. So the word das is not only wisdom, but it's the wisdom to be able to weigh between sides. That's what the word das means. Here, there's a very critical difference between the way people weigh a court decision and the way God weighs a court decision. And listen carefully. When any person in a court of law weighs between innocent and guilty, required to pay money or not required to pay money, it's very possible for the people that are judging it, the judges themselves, that they can judge each side independently of the other. In other words, they'll, make, they'll take out a yellow sheet of paper and they'll write on it guilty and they'll write six reasons why guilty. And when, he, when they write those six reasons, they can isolate them from any idea or concept of innocence. These are the reasons why this person is totally guilty. And then they can make another sheet of paper and write innocent on top of it and give six reasons for innocent. For innocent. Six of this, six of that. When does Das come to play? Das comes to play that when you have the two sheets of paper and you don't know what to do, then you have to start balancing one with the other. But when you are deciding either the guilty or you're deciding the innocent, they can be done independently of each other. There's no requirement of a blend between the two. You do this list, you do that list, and then you say, okay, which one sounds more reasonable? Let's balance them out. That's in Mishpat B'nai Adam. In the justice process, and this is the most important thing of the evening, in the justice process of God, in the scales of justice of God, there is no such thing as the scale of guilty, the scale of prosecution, when the scale of the virtues of the person are not there at the same time. The thing doesn't exist. Now, I'd like to develop why this is this way, but I'm going to start with a story. The story is as follows. It's a very famous story about Rabbi Yisrael Falanta. Rabbi Yisrael Falanta, a Torah sage, came to visit Rabbi Yisrael Falanta. Rabbi Yisrael Falanta, by the way, just in case you don't know who he was, he was a great ethical figure, responsible for the Muslim movement, as it was called, which was the direct study of ethical works in an isolated fashion from other parts of the Torah. Not to say they're not Torah, but to make it into a separate subject. And he was known as that, a great, great ethical figure. In any case, somebody came to visit Rabbi Salanta, a very close person to Rabbi Salanta, and then when it came time for the person to leave, Rabbi Salanta put on his coat and took a large sum of money and said, come, we'll go together. So the other fellow looked at Rabbi Yisrael Salanta and said to him, I don't understand. Why do you have to bother yourself to go out? 
certainly you can find a messenger boy to take this money to whoever it belongs to, it's whoever it has to go to. So Yisrael Salant said, in my shots, in my, sh- in my Talmud, in my volumes of Jewish law, it says that I have to go. So the other fellow was close to him, I think he was his brother-in-law, <laughs> said to him, funny, you must have a different shot than I have. It doesn't say anywhere in my shot that you have to personally deliver money. So Yisrael Salanta said, maybe in your shot it doesn't say it, but it does in mine. And he began to explain. And he said the following thing. It says that there were three years of famine <coughs> in the, in, during David's reign, King David's reign. And King David turned to God to find out what was the reason for the famine. What was the reason for the famine? By he rav made David. The prophet says that there was a rav, there was a famine in the days of David. By Yavakish David, Hashem. And David ultimately looked for the reason. He asked God, what is the reason? By Yemah Hashem, and God said to David, El Shaul, The reason for the famine is because of Saul and because of the house of blood. So the Talmud says, what does this mean because of Saul and because of the house of blood? So the Talmud says, because of the fact that when Saul died, nobody eulogized him the way he deserved to be eulogized as a great person. That was one reason why the famine came. And the second reason why the famine came was because Shaul killed out the city of priests. So the Talmud says, this doesn't make any sense. You're saying that the famine came because they didn't eulogize King David when he passed away the way he should have been eulogized. So you're saying that he was a great person, which there's no question about. And that's why the famine came. And at the, uh, by the same token, the famine came because Shaul killed out certain priests in the city of No. That's a conflict in and, itse- in, of it- in and of itself. doesn't make any kind of sense. Make up your mind. Are you trying to make Shaul great? Are you trying... To, to punish the people for what Shaul did, that they had some part in. Make up your mind. So the Talmud answers and the Talmud says the following thing, that you don't understand how God works. Bakshu es Hashem, Hashem pa'alu. Which means, the Gemara says, that whenever God judges a person, it's impossible for the judgment of the person to ever begin on the side of guilt before it is already mentioned beforehand his chuyas his worthy deeds the whole concept of mishpat doesn't start by God to see the negative part of a person before seeing all the chuyas of the person before seeing all the merits of the person you don't even get to the step of seeing the parts for which the person has to answer so this is no conflict. God, right, God had, was going to punish the people with a famine because of Shaul's killing out Novira Kohanim. So it's no conflict that at the same time that God was going to punish them with a famine for killing out Novira Kohanim, so that meant that now Saul would be judged. If Saul is being judged, the thing that precludes that judgment is all his greatness. So the famine can come because he wasn't eulogized properly at the same time. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said, I am now going to criticize that person for something that he did wrong. 
and I'm taking the right to do that because this is the way God wants me to behave. God also reprimands the human being and under certain conditions man has the responsibility as well. So I am walking in the ways of God. But to walk in the ways of God means that if I have to judge that person, I have to be able to see all his greatness before I ever come to judge him. Therefore, I have to go to him and give him the honor of telling him that I know how great he is and then judge him for the thing that I think he has to be judged for. This is what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said. How do we understand this? The way that this is understood is the following way. What got the entire concept of the scale of justice started? We don't have too much longer to go. What got the whole scale started? What got the scale of justice started? What was the primary motivation on God's part to decide after 26 generations that the world should not go on handouts but that there should be some concept of deserving which is ultimately an act of loving kindness? What was it? God wanted that the person should have all his blessings and everything good by his own acts of deserving it, by his own merit. Being that that was what God wanted, as a secondary step to that, he had to also put into the system the opposite. That if you don't do what you have to do, now that you've gotten the ability and the potentials to do it, I have to deal with that also. But when God came, in other words, but that was a second step. That was on the rebound. But the primary thing that God wanted to do by setting up a system of deserving was not to punish man. What God wanted to do by setting up a system of justice in the world was that ultimately the human being should be able to benefit from the blessing in the greatest way, that being by his deserving it. That's what God wanted. In other words, the and being that that become, in other words, you have to deserve it, so it's Meshuggah. If you'll do the right thing, you'll get it. And if you won't do the right thing, you'll also get it. Then it doesn't make sense. Then you're not getting it with deserving it. But the point being that the idea of, of judging, giving punishment is the bounce off or it's the rebound of the scale of justice. But the deepest reason for the whole scale of justice to be established was because God wanted that the blessing should come to the person in the greatest way. Therefore, whenever God punishes a person or God judges a person for punishment, it's impossible for him to get there before he first sees all the things that he did that he deserves blessing for. Because the entire system of the punishment is only a second step from the original step of making the person deserve it for his good. So how can you then say, I'm not going to look at the things that he didn't deserve. I'm only going to look at the things that he didn't do for not deserving. That wasn't the primary focus of the whole concept of deserving. The whole primary focus of deserving, the word deserving, was for blessing. So whenever God decides deserving, it has to start from the blessing. It has to start from seeing the merit of the person. After you see the merit, then you have to also weigh out. You're doing it with merit, you have to weigh out the other side as well. Now, this is all lovely. And we're all deciding how God has to look at us. But the truth of the matter is that this is something very deep for us to understand about ourselves.
when we prepare for a day of judgment and we have to know that there are things that we have to deal with and it's very possible that the things that we have to deal with might not be necessarily they might be things that you know like you moved away and there's some straightening out that has to be done and hopefully you'll get away not get away but you'll be able to rid yourself of a lot of it but the consciousness of a person on Rosh Hashanah is that I have to answer I have to be able to look at God in the Matan Onish that God is a one, one that gives punishment for the, for the reason of purifying the person I have to be able to look at him that way so a person is very quick to say God always has to look at my negative parts and the next thing is that we resist being looked at and we don't appreciate being looked at or being judged and we don't appreciate the level of the punishment what we have to know is that the punishment or whatever the system of strict justice might be is only the rebound of after God looked at all your merit what does that mean? The way a person should look at judgment is the following way. I did X amount of good things. For all those good things that I did, I should grow spiritually so much. The thing that's preventing the merit from bringing out my total spiritual growth is that there's some negative things as well. And the punishment, or whatever Hashem might do to me, is only to free the wall that's blocking the spiritual development of my positive things. In other words, the way a person should understand God's judgment is that God's judgment is going through his motivation to give man blessing. And he looks at the person through everything that he deserves in terms of blessing. But then when it comes down to the final analysis and he says, wow, you did so many good things and you exerted so much power and you exerted so much control in your Yiddishkeit you should grow so much but I can't give it to you yet because there's some negative things there that are preventing it from being fully realized this is the way a person has to understand God's looking at him there's no Jew that doesn't have millions and millions of beautiful things that are deserving of tremendous spiritual blessing no Jew Mitzvahs kerimine. Every Jew is, is full with mitzvahs as the pomegranate is full with, with seeds, the Talmud tells us. So what's judgment? The judgment is that there's some things that are preventing it from getting, from getting to where it's supposed to reach. And the judgment is merely to remove the stoppage, the blockage, that's not letting the merit have its strongest effect. The Rabbi when he talks about tshuva, says <coughs> that when we do mitzvahs there are spiritual lights that are, are created and that when we do our veris it's very possible that a lot of the lights are extinguished but the Rabbi Yonah says very beautifully and what happens when the person does tshuva he doesn't start off from zero when he does tshuva he takes away the extinguishing element and all his mitzvahs light up again every person has to think about this because I think every person in this room moves in a certain direction towards spiritual growth and spiritual development and we do bother 
and we do spend the money and we do take off the time and we do learn and we do things. So we're putting forth all the, all the effort. And there's many, many schusen that we have. There's no question about it. But are we wasting it by creating blockage that doesn't let the blessing come through? That's the way we're supposed to understand the mishpat of Hashem. The judgment of Hashem is that He wants it to flow through. And there's some things that are standing in the way of letting it flow through. Now, we come back and we understand what the Rambam says. A mamidim chazan, and we don't make people that give out the, the, the whiplash to the person that has performed the transgression, people that are weak in physical strength, and people that have a tremendous degree of wisdom. What's the idea? means that in a physical way the punishment should not be too strong and too brute. But we're also concerned that the kochas hanefesh, the spiritual forces that go into the act of punishment should also be not a direct spirit punishment, but a punishment that's only a bounce off from after first seeing all the good of the person. In other words, that the, the nefesh that goes, the spirit that goes into the person that's putting the whip on the person should be of a person that's Yisere Mada, that he knows how to look at the person in his totality, that he knows how to see the person in his goodness, and that what the punishment that he's getting now is because this is preventing all the good things from flowing into him. And that's important in the person that delegates punishment that the way the punishment is delegated is that it should never be a koach rishon. It should never be a direct thing. You did something, you know, bang. That's not mishpat. Mishpat is that there's so much blessing and there's something in the way of it. And the mishpat removes the blockage that doesn't let the blessing go through. And the person that gave the malchus had to have the knowledge and wisdom and sensitivity of knowing that person and then giving it with that attitude. The attitude that Nebuch, you did something, that your spiritual growth, your candles of mitzvahs are not lighting because of that, that idea. What we've done up to this point, basically, is that we've defined that the Gaon Yaakov, that the beauty of Jacob, the splendor of Jacob, is in the performance of all the mitzvot. In, in, and the beauty and the splendor of Jacob is realized by that system of justice that says deserve it. And it's only in a second step that there's a mishpat for punishment, that there's a justice for the opposite. This is what we've explained so far. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take a break for 10 minutes or so. The last part of it is when we brought the Pasuk before, when we brought the verse before, Rak Eschem Yadati Mikal that only you did I single out in a special love from all the families of earth. Lachain Efkaid Eschem Sechem, and therefore I will remember to judge you on all your different, on all your different things that you did wrong. Now, in retrospect of the idea of judgment, that the idea of judgment is based 
from the merit that the person does from the goodness from the greatness of the person and then the judgment is only to balance out the blockage now this verse takes on even a deeper meaning because I singled you out in love which means that I gave you the ability and the potentials of greatness therefore I now have to now I have to punish you for the things that you did wrong because they prevent the love that I showed you from giving you all the blessings that you should have. That's the deeper interpretation now of that verse of Eschem Yadati. Now, here we come to a yet deeper area. So far, everything that we've spoken about in terms of Gaon Yaakov is the beauty of Yaakov, that they have the ability through deserving, of deserving the, all the spiritual blessing. That's the beauty. That they have all the mitzvah satara, that's the ability of building everything in terms of their spiritual growth and the blessing. That's a gaon. That's something splendid. That the human being has that ability. There is, though, another facet to gaon Yaakov, other than the dimension of deserving and the beauty of deserving. There's yet one more dimension that fits into the whole spirit of justice that also communicates the beauty of Jacob. <coughs> There's a verse in, in the Psalms, Svivav Nisara Ma'od, which means that the ones that are close to God are punished much, much more severely than ones that are not so close to God. Under normal circumstances, we explain this and we understand this, that because they are that much closer and they understand so much better, so therefore their actions are even though they're identical actions to others, but their actions mean more, both positively and negatively, because of their level of understanding. It's like if you'd have a child that's 13 years old and he would play around with matches, you might do something a little bit more severe than if you would have a little kid that's four years old doing it because the four-year-old doesn't even know that there's a danger involved. But <coughs> it's a mistake to assume that the concept of sviva of nisara ma'od, that the concept that those that are closer are punished, is based in the verse that we just said before. What did we say before? Like, ask him, because I knew you and I showed you my love more than the, all the families of earth, therefore I punished you. So a person can make the association in his mind, the analogy in his mind, that this is also the idea or the concept behind that those that are closer to God get punished more severely. One could make that analogy. It sounds very close. But it's a mistake. And the mistake is because the Rak Eschem Yadati Mikal Mishpachais Adam is the concept of the scale of justice because that's the foundation of the world. That whole idea of Rak Eschem Yadati that I singled you out and therefore we have to deal with the negative as well, that's a verse that refers to the system of justice that became integral to the foundation of the world. The foundation of the world is not thrown just at Sadiq's way and therefore he has to be punished if he doesn't do his role. The role of establishing the world based on a system of deserving it is something that's universal. It's for all of us. That's not unique to the Sadiq. So it's a mistake to assume that the idea of Rak Eschem Yadati Mikol Mishpachais Adam is the reason for Sviv of Nisara Ma'od. It's not, because the Rak Eschem Yadati is something that is for every Jew. Being that I gave every Jew the ability 
of doing what's necessary to become deserving and to establish the very foundations of the world. Therefore, every Jew, not only the tzaddik, every Jew has to be able to show that he deserves it, and to the degree that he doesn't, there have to be adjustments made. So what does Sviv of Nisara Admaod mean? What does it mean? That the tzaddik yet has to face another concept of justice that's not the concept of justice that we've been speaking about up till this point. A level, another level of justice, not quite the level that we were speaking about before. What is this new level? So the best way of explaining this is that with the Gemara tells us, the Talmud tells us that when Moses was on the mountain learning Torah, one of the things that he saw was how in a future generation, Rebbe Kiva, the great Torah sage, would be carried out and he would be dealt with as a piece of meat and that iron combs would rip his flesh apart. And this is one of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu saw into the future. It's very famous, we say it on Yom Kippur, it's part of the Asara Haruge Malchus when we speak about the Ten Martyrs. And Moses asked God a question. Moses said, Zu Does this make sense? Is this the Torah, Rebbe Kiva, the great person who it says that the Torah was worthy to be given through him on an equal basis to Moses or even greater? So Moses questioned when he saw this Zu Can this be that this is Torah and this is its reward? And the answer that came back is Shseik, keep quiet, Moshe. This is what has come up in God's mind to do and you're not one to question it. This is what the Talmud says. The Vilna Gaon, the Vilna Gaon comes along and he says a very mysterious interpretation to this story and says the following thing. He says that we know that when God wanted to create the world, his plan really was to create the world totally on a system of justice. Interesting how the words are the same. In his mind it came up, so to speak, to create the world with justice. And he saw that if the world would only be based on justice, the world wouldn't be able to exist. So he made a partner to justice, the element of compassion, and he created his world. Under normal circumstance, so the Vilna Gaon says, the Allah In other words, the, the, uh, what God entertained to be the way to create the world with only the system of justice, this is what God was telling Moses. You remember the Allah that I had? You remember the contemplation that I had to create the world just with justice? When it comes to Rebbe Kiva, it remains the way I wanted to establish the world to begin with. This is what the Vilna Gaon says. And this doesn't seem reasonable. It doesn't make sense. Because if God saw that the world can't exist that way and there has to be compassion with it, so why, when it comes to Rebbe Kiva, why does he deserve that it should go back to the way God thought originally to create the world just with justice? So what is the Vilna Gaon saying? So there's something very beautiful here that I saw from one of my teachers to explain this. <clears throat> the reason why God added the element of compassion to justice is not because in the system of justice alone, in the system of justice alone, we, we wouldn't be able to live and we wouldn't be able to manage. That's not the reason. You know what the real reason is? The real reason is because if God would work only with, straight with a system of justice, there would be no freedom of choice. 
Why? Because the minute a person would do something wrong, he would immediately be punished. The minute he would do something right, he would be immediately rewarded. It would come to such an immediate cause and effect situation that there would be no Bechira left. There would be no freedom of choice left. To tell a, per- a person contemplates doing an Avery, he says, wow, well, I got all the choices in the world, but I know that when I'll do this sin, it's like putting my hand into a fire. There's no choice involved once you know that. So if there would be a strict element of justice, there would, no be, wo- would be no world of free choice because it would be so immediate and so direct and so clear that a person wouldn't have a choice but to do what's right if he wants to stay alive. That's what it means that God saw that the world wouldn't exist. God wanted a world that we would choose. Why? So that we should deserve. Again, going back to what we were talking about before. He wanted a world that we would deserve. To deserve, there has to be free choice. For there to be free choice, God can't respond immediately with a total system of justice because then then there is no freedom of choice. If there's no freedom of choice, there's no deserving. So therefore, God took away some of the justice and mixed compassion in there. So now we can make the mistake of thinking, oh, just once God will let me go. I remember I was building the air around the camp on Friday and the caretaker came around and he says, what are you driving yourself crazy? God will forgive you just once. In other words, the idea... The idea, right, so, so therefore, in other words, once there's that element of compassion, that could, and there's no direct result, so that creates the whole thing. We know that sometimes a person rises to the point that he doesn't have freedom of choice. It can be as a punishment, as we once learned to, in regards to Paro, and it can sometimes be a reward for a tzaddik, that he becomes so great that he rises above choice. And it's not, a, it's not in contradiction because that becomes his ultimate choice. His ultimate choice becomes that he should not be torn apart between doing and not doing the will of God. The best example of this is Isaac wanted to bless Esau and it came out that it was Jacob that was in front of him. So all the commentaries ask, so the, the blessing's not worth anything because he was thinking about Esau. He wasn't thinking about Jacob. And the answer that comes is, though on a conscious level he wanted to bless Esau, but in the deepest way he only wanted to do what God would want him to do. So since his deepest choice was to do God's will so the blessing could go, even though he thought it was Esau. So in other words, the deepest choice of the tzaddik is that he should never have to be confused to go against the will of God. And it's not a conflict to choice because that's the deepest. The, the choice of not having to choose is the greatest choice that a person can sometimes make. If this is so, it would follow that why, is there, why did God not make the world with direct cause and effect and he spiced it with compassion so that there should be freedom of choice. That's the reason for it. So there should be freedom of choice. Let's say the lack of freedom of choice is a blessing and a reward to this particular person because he's risen to that level. So for him, he doesn't lose anything by God dealing with him on a direct level of cause and effect. For another person that he has to develop through struggles and freedom of choices, so if God would respond immediately, he would be robbing him of his freedom of choice. But for the tzaddik that has already deserved that he should be free of choices and he prefers much, much more to just do everything that's right and he deserves that that's how his life should be so God can deal with him back in the world of, of din, in the, in the system of justice. 
And the tzaddik is happy that God is dealing with him in a clear, direct way. In a way that he doesn't feel that he still has options open. He loves to stand in front of God in a way that he doesn't feel that he has an option not to do God's will. Why should I even feel that way? Why should I want something like that? So for the tzaddik, it applies the earliest idea that God had of creating the world, of creating the world with the system of justice. I prefer that God deals directly with me and doesn't confuse the issue for me. Deal directly with me. This too is Gaon Yaakov. This too is the greatness of Yaakov. The greatness of Yaakov is that in, even in the deepest periods of our history, we have a spiritual potential of asking God to deal directly with us. That we shouldn't be confused as to what God wants, even if it means that God will respond in a way that might be difficult for us to deal with. That's a greatness that stands to Yaakov. That's a greatness of Jacob. The mentality of the world in terms of judgment is get away with as much as you can. The Jew is not that way. So it's interesting that there's the Gaon Yaakov, there's the beauty of Yaakov performing all the mitzvahs of Torah, having the privilege of bringing the blessing to himself, and that's the splendor of Jacob. And there's the splendor of Jacob even in the, in the steel combs ripping away a sage's flesh, where he's willing to stand in front of God, unconfused as to the cause and effect of what he's doing in his life. <clears throat> now, I never said this at the beginning, but I'll say it now at the end. Gaon Yaakov not only means greatness, not only means splendor, not only means grandeur, it means one more thing. It comes from the word gaiva. It comes from the word to be proud. Gaon Yaakov means the pride of Jacob. And what I'd like to ask now is, why is the holiday of Rosh Hashanah considered the holiday that portrays the pride of Jacob? And the answer is simple. Every other holiday talks about something that God who chose us gave us the chosen. When it comes to the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, we talk about us as chosen turning back to the one that chose us. And we prepare to turn in that direction because we want to be able to stand clearly in front of him and know his will. That's the Gaon. That's the pride, that's the beauty, that's the gava of Yaakov. And I think that's a very important principle for a person to learn when he comes closer and closer to the day of judgment. It's our greatness that we're not scared of the concept. We know that the concept is ultimately a concept that was intended to give us blessing and to give us tova, that we know. And even in the event that the, 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 uh, the situation is a very difficult one to absorb and a very difficult one to handle. We prefer it because we stand in front of God with the face of truth rather than fooling ourselves. The beauty of Jacob is, and this we mentioned last year, was that the shofar actually brings God into the courtyard, courtroom. 
doesn't only sit him down on the seat of compassion. Initially, what the chauffeur does is it asks God to judge us. What kind of a thing is that? What are you begging trouble for? The answer is that the Jew knows that the process of deserving is ultimately so that the blessings should be, become part of him. The Jew knows that ultimately the system of clear justice is in one that he will be able to know clearly his standing in front of God. Both those aspirations of the Jew, of being able to deserve his spiritual blessing and his want to stand clearly in front of God and know who he is, where he's going, and what he has to do, even if it might mean a higher level of justice, the Jew is ready to ascend to that level. That's the Gaon Yaakov that we pray for, that we should have the strength and the blessing to have on the day of Rosh Hashanah.